So I kind of just told people more or less, even when I was speaking to them before I joined, that I'm going to try to be a bit more of like an intrapreneur and just to think about like to question everything, but to do so in a positive way, not like in an, an annoying way. Because ultimately, you have to think like that if you're an entrepreneur and if you have less resources at your disposal than a lot of bigger companies that you're going up against, you have to be thinking about, okay, what do I have at my disposal that's better than what other people have? And the answer is often like your agility and your willingness to try new things, right? So uh, to some extent, that's exactly what we're doing now is we're willing to try things in a way that a competitor isn't because we're big, but we're not as big as a lot of the people that we're going up against. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In the last episode, we talked to Brian Beckham, host of the Lesson from Leaders podcast, computer scientist, philosopher, and trial lawyer. We discussed his approach to build a law firm where the business serves the employees and not the other way around. And we also discussed the important role that trial lawyers play in protecting individual citizens' rights. Our featured guest today is well known in marketing circles. Jeremy Goldman has been an authority on marketing and its intersection with technology for over a decade. If you have attended one of the big marketing conferences, chances are that you heard him speak. But Jeremy's story also has a very unique twist. He built and led a successful marketing firm, Firebrand but ultimately decided to sell the firm and join a bigger company, Insider Intelligence. In the conversation, he describes his transition as going from being an entrepreneur to being an intrapreneur. And in the first part of the episode, we talked about the journey and how to assess when a step like that may make sense for an entrepreneur. In the second part of our conversation, I tapped into Jeremy's expertise as an analyst at the forefront of what's going on in marketing technology. And we had a very interesting discussion about the many ways that the emergence of AI will impact executives, as well as a little conversation about the potential future of Twitter. And, you know, we looked at it from a business, not from a political standpoint. Enjoy. Jeremy, it's great to have you here. So let's start. Have you introduced yourself to your listeners? What are you doing now? And a little bit about the journey that got you here. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like I've had kind of a circuitous route. I, in a nutshell, did my MBA, wanted to get into beauty, worked as kind of an e-commerce manager and social media leader for a number of years uh, within the, the beauty world, and then started an agency where I had to be you know, the leader of the agency, going out, getting business, speaking and educating people about uh, the benefits of digital marketing to build uh, all of their enterprises. And then after a while, I realized I wanted to do something completely different. And essentially, almost I joke, uh, get to criticize what everybody else is doing rather than have to do myself. But in all seriousness, it was really a matter of going in-house to be an analyst and to cover the companies that I used to be kind of like learning from and using as case studies and presentations. So in some ways, it's it's not really all that different. But I get to be a very different kind of leader now than when I had to be the quote unquote, the man, I guess you could say, you know, at my agency. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you here, because you have had a journey and you were in a position when, when we cross paths. 
I think I saw you as a speaker either at Search Love or Inbound and then kind of got to know each other a little bit. And you were at that place at that point where probably anybody who wanted to be in our industry dreamt to be in that type of position. You were CEO and leader of your own successful agency. You were an in-demand authority figure on the topics of marketing, you know, and then you decided that you wanted to no longer being the CEO. What was that process like? And what were the drivers of your choice? You know, to some extent, it was a matter of, I was thinking to some extent about the type of work that we did. And, you know, we offered basically digital branding services. So we would sometimes rebrand an entire company. We would sometimes launch an entirely new campaign to make people think about brand in an entirely different light. And that's really, really interesting, fun work to do. But then you start to figure out all of the different challenges about that type of business. One of the things is that it doesn't scale that well. So then you have to think, well, I could just try to go for the biggest possible companies that don't really need my help because they'll be able to pay a bit more and that'll help me build the company and then I'll get a bit more famous. But then to what end? Does that really, I mean, I guess I can employ a few more people, so that's great. And that is really good. I really enjoyed like to be able to hire people and to know that you're impactful to like their ability to earn a livelihood. And so I, I liked all of those things. But then I figured, let me try to some extent to try to pivot the business and try to do something slightly different uh, in a way that basically does scale, where we would consume a whole bunch of data from a number of different companies, anonymized, and then essentially publish different papers on the future of you know, the state of AI for marketing purposes. And uh, so essentially release a new paper every six weeks, for lack of a better term. And then eventually try to sell some of that stuff. And ultimately, I kind of figured that idea can scale, but I needed a lot more money to make it happen. And I probably could have taken money from people, but it stresses me out, the idea of losing other people's money. I'm just, that's just not like a thing that, and I know there are some people who I, you know, who I've taken $60 million from people and lost all of it. And, you know, you don't have to even say sorry, it just doesn't work out. And that's not me. So to some extent, I figured, well, then what else can you do? And it's not even a matter of like defeatist. It's a matter of saying, well, I could do this for myself and do okay, but I can have a bigger impact if uh, I go in-house somewhere. And maybe I should do that because what do we really care about? I mean, some people might care about fame and I care a lot more about impact. And if you get a little bit of fame in the process, sure, great, but it shouldn't be like the be-all, end-all, what you're trying to aim for. This kind of gets at another question that I always ask my guests, which is how is your definition of success for yourself from a personal standpoint, changed as you progress through your career? I think it's a matter of thinking about the impact to whoever you're beholden to, you know? So in the case of insider intelligence, we have a lot of clients who are trying to make really significant decisions involving, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And if we can give them really good advice, they can make better decisions, which then moves the whole entire technology and marketing ecosystem faster forward and also hopefully in the right direction. You know, like whenever there's a new technology, you probably you know this better than most people, when there's a new technology that gets adopted, it it often gets adopted kind of poorly 
at the beginning. And if we can skip over that poor you know, phase for any new technology, whether it's chat GPT or virtual reality or anything, if we can skip past that awkward adolescent phase, that makes me happy. I feel like then I've contributed to society if I can help us skip past that awkward part and and move towards like where can it be additive to the consumer. So ultimately, going back to your original question, it's all about like what drives you. And I think that the impact that I want to have is is really there, is helping people make better decisions. So something that I'm, I'm curious about is you transition from being in your own company to be in-house. You mentioned the reasons, sort of the industry or business and impact reasons that drove that choice. Was there also a consideration as to what you enjoy doing as part of your work, of your day-to-day work? And how has that impacted your decision? I think it's such a good question because to some extent, you know, it's something I know I've wrestled with, which is how much do you want to enjoy life versus how much do you want to have an impact? You know, and I think a lot of leaders, they really do value both of those things. They don't want to say, well, I had a great time every single day and my life didn't matter. That's not really so much of a leadership thing. So I I really do think in terms of kind of like, can I have a really good impact, a significant impact on whatever I'm working on? And if I can do that, then, then I'm happy. But I know that not everybody is kind of wired that way. For me, basically, there's no conflict. Because if I'm really jazzed about my mission, I'm going to do a great job. And I'm totally confident in that. And if it's something that I'm not equipped to actually handle, I'm going to do a poor job. So I should stay away from that. But there are some people who it's like they are I'm making something up, like amazing at programming. And they just have no love for programming. So they're not going to do it. And I just happen to have really strong correlation between those two things. But ultimately, you know, I think... For there are a lot of people out there, I'd say, like me, who are kind of a little ADD. And if they enjoy their mission, if they're really focused on something, they will do an amazing job. And there's very little uncertainty around that. But if they don't enjoy something, then there's just like no way that they can focus on it. And I'm I'm definitely one of those people. I'm wondering, as you went from the you know, being CEO and founder of the company to more of an analyst role, was there more of a consideration of being a doer versus a manager in terms of what you do? And and how did that play also in your choice? I think that in some ways, if I'm being honest, I'm probably one of those people where I always had to be a bit of a doer no matter what. It's not that I didn't want to, let's say, grow my team at Firebrand to go out and give presentations because a lot of them did. It's just that I wanted to put that presentation together myself. Or if Facebook, now Meta, I guess, launched a new ad manager or a new ad format, I wanted to be the person to try that out and to figure out how it worked because I wanted to understand the mechanics of it because I didn't feel that I can go out there and educate people and give a major keynote if I didn't really know what was happening on the ground, you know, what was newly uh, like hitting the digital ad market. So I had to really always know what was happening. So in some ways, it was like I wasn't only managing ever. And if I was only managing and then I moved to a doer role, that would have been difficult. I feel like in some ways, my role is very similar now because I was at a small agency that forced you to wear a lot of hats. And what's great about what I do now is I basically supervise multiple briefings that go out to clients and we're writing 
you know, upwards of eight small stories a day. So it's like nonstop and I get to write and manage. And in some ways it's, again, there are some people who really love one of those things and hate the other. And I happen to love both. So I feel very fortunate that I can do both of them now. As you went through the process of building an agency, and that was your first time around as an entrepreneur, what were some of the principles and the aspirations that you had as you thought about how you wanted to manage and grow people? And then in general, as how you wanted to lead and the type of leader that you aspired to be? So in some ways, I tried to think in terms of when we were naming the company, first off, there's some people who named a company after themselves. And it was like, knowing me, that was the last thing I wanted to do, because I think it's not about me. It's much more so about the collective. You know, I feel like I'm very collectivist in like the way that I think. And I, we called it Firebrand, right? Named it Firebrand, because I wanted to say that, you know, we're going to be the rabble rouser, we're going to you know, challenge the status quo, even if it may, makes us sometimes a little bit less popular in the short term, we want you to love us in the long term, because we were able to point out something that had to be pointed out. So I really tried to, I want to say have like a few key values that I would impart on people. But other than that, I really want to empower people and show that I trust them. And then they can come to me with any issue. Because I do think a lot of times you hire people, and then you try to kind of mold them too much to your liking, or you try to really kind of structure their days too much. And it's like, if you're hiring the right people, if you can be a little bit hands off, you're probably going to get good things out of them. And if you have to impose your will too much on them, maybe they were the wrong person in the first place. So we tried to hire very conscientiously. And I think that just making sure that people feel very much empowered, and this is their company too, it's not my company that they work at, it's a company that, you know, a bunch of us are working towards the same, you know, end goal. And ultimately, that's so, sometimes, you know, there are people who are not on the boat. And sometimes there are people who they need to get across a few ideas. And basically, there's this thing that Seth Godin says about like peeing on an idea, like to make it theirs, you know, everybody wants to add on to an idea. And if you can empower your people to actually make the company better and change the strategy because and show that you value them enough to change the strategy and that not everything's set in stone, I think you get really good work out of people that way. And I mean, I did, so that was really my whole entire strategy and the way that I tried to lead the team. Well, first of all, I agree 100% with you. Second, not every leader is able to actually walk the talk when it gets to letting their team members uh, lead them. So I'm wondering if you would be able and willing to share some practical examples as to how, you know, you adopted this approach with your team. Yeah, I think that there are a bunch of different ways. I think one thing is we had somebody who worked at our company that had a bit more of an operational background. And there were some things that were not necessarily structured. They were a little too freewheeling. I was kind of like a, I mean, I guess I could say like, creative or macro thinker and thinking like in a very big way. And it's important to surround yourself with people who think differently, you know, who think kind of like break think break problems down into their core components. And, you know, so in this case, this was a situation where like they felt empowered to really speak up and to say like, essentially, we're, we need to put more structure around how we build out projects, how we say what we're going to offer people how we're going to know that if we were successful in the long run. And all of that stuff is, you know, obviously important to building a company. 
I'd be silly if I didn't let somebody basically change, you know, our game plan and improve it by virtue of like giving up some of that control. So that I, I feel like that's a perfect example is like know when something that you're doing as a, as a leader is deficient and relinquish the control in order to make the whole thing better. I think that's a perfect story, actually. As you transitioned into a larger organization, there's trade-offs, obviously. What are the biggest lessons from your experience as an entrepreneur that you brought to this organization and maybe helped you be more effective? I, I will say, I, I feel like I kind of joined the best size company for me in the sense that, yeah, it's bigger, but it's also uh, a disruptor in relation to there are some bigger players within the space, which means that they're very open to interesting ideas and creative thinking. So I kind of just told people more or less, even when I was speaking to them before I joined, that I'm going to try to be a bit more of like an intrapreneur and just to think about like to question everything, but to do so in a positive way, not like in an, an annoying way. Because ultimately, you have to think like that if you're an entrepreneur and if you have less resources at your disposal than a lot of bigger companies that you're going up against, you have to be thinking about, okay, what do I have at my disposal that's better than what other people have? And the answer is often like your agility and your willingness to try new things, right? So uh, to some extent, that's exactly what we're doing now is we're willing to try things in a way that a competitor isn't because we're big, but we're not as big as uh, a lot of the people that we're going up against. And I think that that kind of mentality has served me pretty well. I shouldn't even say, by the way, served me pretty well. I think hopefully it's the people that I work with that it serves well. It, and you have to find the right company that's going to be willing to accept that. You know, not, not every company, even though it will generally help just about any company to have an entrepreneurial insight, uh, there are a lot of companies that don't think that way, that aren't willing to accept that kind of thinking. And I give... I mean, insider intelligence, a lot of credit for being that type of company. So I love what you're talking about, because I think that's a, an avenue that is often not looked at by many people. The idea of being an entrepreneur, which is being somebody with an entrepreneurial mindset within a larger structure. If somebody wanted to operate in a larger company and be able to have that type of or like more of an entrepreneurial role, what are some of the key traits you need to look for in the company? Some maybe key questions you can ask in the interview process? I think that A, I'll, I'll tell you, but then I'll kind of flip the question around a little bit because I think that you have to ask almost to what extent, like how open they are to new ideas. But also, I do think it's one of those things that you have to speak to people at the company because how do you ask a company during an interview process? So are you open to new ideas? And they're going to say, no, everything's perfect. Nobody's going to ever say that, even if they're not open to it. So I think getting like those unvarnished second opinions from other people is probably really critical in that type of uh, situation. I think to understand where the company is, have they fallen behind, in which case they're probably going to be a lot more open to new ideas or are they, you know, this well-funded company, but they see that there's seven companies above them that they've got to, you know, leapfrog past, in which case they probably are also open to that type of thinking. So to understand, not just to ask the questions during that interview, but also to really try to understand their market position and speaking to people there will help give you like a 360 view of, is this somebody who's really going to be open to that type of entrepreneurial thinking? That's great. I'm going to ask one, one last question around your experience, and then I would be a criminal if I didn't take advantage of your expertise. So we're going to talk about marketing a little bit af after this. 
going back to the jump, right? So you're an entrepreneur, you're the CEO of your own company. And at this stage, you're thinking, well, maybe it's time for me to actually leave my own company or, you know, sell the company and and go into a larger organization. For many people who are at that point, maybe that's not a consideration or that's something that it's challenging to do. What are some of the you know, question you can ask yourself, steps that you can take to actually realize whether that's a good option for you and maybe help you kind of like leave behind what you've built? I've thought a lot about this. And I think that there are a few things that people really value here, you know, like when it comes to being an entrepreneur, there are some people who I think are very different entrepreneurs where what they really care about is money. And I just mean that they're in an industry where they're going to work like 120 hours a week and maybe they're going to get underpaid. But if it all works out, then they're going to have like a 10 to $100 million payday at the end of it, right? So there are people like that that we know in like these very high scaling tech uh, companies. That's not me. That's like not a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, they're really attracted to either like they're very passionate for a thing that they wouldn't be able to do if they hadn't built a business around it, or they love the autonomy, right? I think that those are the big components to like what make people entrepreneurs. So for me, I think trying to figure out if you're going to make that type of decision and knowing that you're going to have a high degree of autonomy um, when you pull that trigger already, you know, that sounds pretty good, right? Because it, it, to me, it wasn't the fact that uh, whether or not I had a boss or not. And this, by the way, sorry, I'm going to go off topic for a second. But everybody has a boss. Even if you don't have a boss, you have a boss. And I, I think that's such an important thing to remember. Like if you're the CEO of a major company, you know, you have shareholders and you have a board. If you're the head of an agency, you have clients that are basically your boss and tell you what to do to some extent, right? You don't always have to listen, but you don't always have to listen to your boss in, um, you know, a non-entrepreneurial company, like let's say, like, like I'm in now. So ultimately, it's like everybody wants a degree of autonomy and you just have to see, are you going to have that degree of autonomy that you think can make you successful? And obviously, if you can still do something that you're passionate about, then why not then go in-house? You know, obviously there are some trade-offs there, but I think I can have a bit bigger impact here and I can still be a leader. So it kind of, it's a win-win in that regard. Yeah, it's very true. I, I will say one thing in terms of what you said. If you are going through a startup process because you think you're going to have a massive payoff, and if that is your main driver, you better have picked something that it's going to turn around quickly. Because after two or three years, the grind is not enough. And if you look at the people who have built major wealth for themselves, most likely you're going to see them that now they're on their third startup after they made major wealth in the first one, because what they love is the process of building the business. First of all, the process of running the business, the energy of the business. And it's not that they don't like the money because the money is important and it's a measuring stick. But I think that it's almost impossible to, if you're, if you think that you're going to start up only because you're going to make a hundred million dollars, you have to be very lucky to get to the million dollar. Totally. And so much of it is like, if you, if you told somebody who had a potential $10 million payday, and let's say if like they're making per year in the meantime, let's say a salary of 120,000, and that's enough for them to live on. 
they're going to be happy. It's a very different situation than if they have to work for a dollar in order to make that potential 10 million payday. It's also a major impact, like we were talking about, like the passion. There are some people who I know who will work for something for six years because they believe in it. They care a lot about it. And you know what? By the way, it might make them rich, but it's not the only thing. And if they work on it for six years and it doesn't work out, they'll be disappointed, but they really believe in what they're doing. And they're, you know, you cannot discount that in terms of it's very difficult, frankly, to work for, you know, a hundred plus hours unless you really believe in what you're doing, unless you're really into it. And you're having fun doing it and you're doing activities that you enjoy doing. I one of my guests in an early episode is John Darbyshire. He's the founder of a company called Smart Suite. And he had a major liquidity event with a company that he started building in 2000, sold it to Dell in like 2008 or 2009, started a charity foundation, and then he got bored and took his own money and designed a new product. And now he's running a new company and he's doing it because he loves it. You know, and he will probably do very well with this company because he loves the process of building certain types of software products. He loves the conversations with the customers. He loves the people that he works with. Ultimately, what determines your success is the fact that if you have that love and passion, you're going to able to put that extra push that makes it happen. A hundred percent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's, you know, a lot of founders, they kind of have... Uh, and I know you know this from your experience, but they often have these really good origin stories where it's like they saw something uh, that was a pain point for the average customer and th- it impacted them personally. And then they say, well, I've got to fix this, right? And because it's connected, it, it's very rare that I hear this major success story about somebody who's raised $60 million or you know, $100 million, whatever, and and they did it. And they just did it because they noticed that a sector was growing and they had no connection to it whatsoever. It's very rare that you have that type of situation. So I think that you're right, that passion does lead people to work hard enough at something to give it a chance to succeed. Yeah. So I want to take advantage of your expertise because, you know, you and I have been in digital marketing for about 20 years. We've seen numerous inflection points, you know, the advent of the dot-com, the, you know, advent of the content management systems, the advent of SEO, you know, 10 years ago, the beginning of programmatic. And I think that right now, we're right at the beginning of a major shift. It's now, it's been bubbling under for, you know, a couple of years among the people who know, and now it's kind of like being seen more mainstream. It is the advent of AI. So, you know, as people are thinking about AI, its implication in marketing and business, what are some of the things that you are seeing and some of the things that an executive should be thinking about right now? I think one of the key things is everybody needs to figure out uh, to what extent this is going to add value to their organizations and not to either put their, like I've seen almost like two reactions. I'm curious if you've seen similar, okay? I've seen a lot of people who are like, this is going to change everything. It's going to change everything overnight. It's going to be so easy to put out amazing content in like half a second. Uh, Nobody's going to be employed. We're all going to be living on food stamps because of it. Like there's that kind of reaction. And then there's the like, let me just put my head in the sand and this will pass very quickly. And I think that 
I mean, curious what you think, but do you think either one of those is entirely true? Because I think the answer is often kind of somewhere in the middle. I think I've seen a third reaction, which is sort of like a variant of the head in the sand, which is you will never be able to replace humanity. I think the answer is in the middle. And I think that's my personal take. AI can speed a lot of processes. And so it's a little bit, the parallel that I would say is I started my career on Wall Street in 1992, right? I spent all my time building models in Excel at the time, spreading comps, which was, you know, getting the annual reports of a lot of companies and see how earnings should be adjusted to get a fair valuation, et cetera. It was a very manual process. And, you know, that was the year, like 92, 92, 93, 94. That's when the, the spreadsheet was starting to really take hold everywhere. And I remember having conversation with more senior bankers and say, like, how did you do so many versions of the model when Excel didn't exist? And so they're like, well, you know, we use the HP 12 and we did two versions instead than 10. Then in the early 2000s, with the emergency of the databases, you know, the financial databases, the work that, you know, would have taken like 10 hours to me and other analysts, which is going patiently through 20 annual reports to get the valuation. Now, all of a sudden, like you could get all that information at the touch of a button. And so probably the analyst time was being used doing more versions of that or like doing doing additional work. And I think with AI, it's a little bit of the same. I was having a conversation today with somebody on my team. It's like, it's not that AI is going to rewrite all the copy or create all the better copy, but you can have, you know, a really good copywriter, like get a good creative draft. And then I can see, you know, having an AI thing, building a whole bunch of options based on the directions that the AI has been given. And then the the time of the human copywriter is like taking the one that worked the best and really make them connect to the thing. So that's an example. Yeah. Yeah, And that's the kind of the way that I think about it too, right? Is that, you know, we used to have typewriters and we used to write everything by hand. And it was a skill to be able to have really legible handwriting. And thank God for me, it's no longer a skill that you need in society. You know, like um, I would, I would not have a job otherwise. So when people say like, you can't replace humans, we're replacing old skills of humans that are deprecated and are not as important anymore. And we're doing that all the time. This is nothing new in that regard. And people can say it's something new, but it, like, but here's why it's different here. It's a shift. Human skills, there are going to be certain skills that are going to be more important than ever before. I can tell you certainly like within the next few years, the ability to fact check and to make sure that you're not making little errors in the name of expediency that's going to be really important, you know, so the people who can do that very quickly and, and can just spot errors faster than other people, uh, knowing that we're introducing these er- errors in the short term into our writing, that's going to be really important. Another key thing that I interviewed somebody for my podcast that I work on on my own that you know about Future Proof, uh, I interviewed Dion Nicholas, who is a uh, AI company called Forethought, doing really interesting things. Uh, and he pointed out that there might be some new jobs that come out of this, like prompt engineers, you know, people who are really good at prompting an AI interface to deliver the optimal solution, right? I mean, in the same way that there was once a, a, it was almost a, 
differentiator for you as a tech worker, if you were really good at writing Google queries, and if you knew how to use Google, at this point, that's no longer really a competitive advantage. But if you can be a much better prompt generator than the another person, uh, you might actually have an advantage in the market. So I think, yes, this is like a very transformative time. We shouldn't pretend like the sky's falling. I think there are a lot of things that ultimately about AI, I would say just for everybody that doesn't see the applicability to what they're doing, this is not going to be a thing that's only useful to the average marketer. You know, it's going to be disruptive in pretty much every single facet of the business. So just get familiar with it now, even if you're not using it on a day-to-day basis. And that's going to give you a slight advantage over the ostriches within your competitive set. If this is not private secret competitive information, how are you guys thinking about using it within the context of your activity? Because you're like a intellectual capital generation company, essentially. How does that impact your work? Can't go into like everything. I mean, obviously, we're playing around with it. But I would say a few things. One thing is we're putting information into things like ChatGPT and GPT-3. That's all publicly available. So any clients who get our you know, briefings will see that every now and then we're trying to write something with the assistance of AI. And then we try to look at the process and see how is this going for uh, us. But ultimately, one of the key things that I think helps us is the fact that we have to have human-driven analysis. And where AI is right now, it's pretty good at summarizing the news, right? But these models are meant to optimize. Like if you ask it to summarize a really long article, it's going to summarize it assuming you have a broad audience because why wouldn't it? But we obviously don't have a broad audience. We've got a more narrow audience. And that means that uh, you have to really be thinking about like what you as a human uh, analyst can add that's going to be very additive. Clients don't obviously, they don't care about how fast we can get content out. We want to get it out quickly so that people can make decisions off of it. But ultimately, they care about the fidelity of the analysis. And that's one of the key things that we're really focused on above anything else. So ultimately, we have to play around with these things. We've got to learn how they can be additive. But we also have to learn where they don't add anything right now, and then really lean into the human analysis. Because I agree with you, the thing you said before about like, you'll never replace humans. It's like, you are replacing humans bit by bit, but you're also unlocking other things that humans are good at that they didn't have the opportunity to do before. So, uh, you know, I do think that humans are not being replaced in our lifetime, but the jobs that we have are going to be very, very different uh, by the end of our lifetime than the jobs that existed, you know, when you and I were born. Yeah, it's interesting. In some ways, the parallel that comes to mind in 2002 and 2003, uh, I was doing work with a brokerage firm that was very financial relationship manager driven. And we were doing work on designing a client access interface. And the initial reaction of the broker is like, no, I don't want, I don't want my client to access their portfolio and do their changes. You know, they need to talk to me. And the way that we got buy in was like, you know, if you give your clients access, the internet does all the things that you're not adding value to, right? They need a statement. They want to look at their position. They need a form. They can do that through them. And then you can spend more of your time 
on the actual relationship management portion of your business and the value add. And that seemed to convince them. So I think that as you look at AI that way, have you seen in, in your research and analysis any company that has done particularly interesting things with it? An example? I would say not as much interesting, more so kind of great that they're trying it, but they're not looking at the pitfalls of it. And unfortunately, those are the ones that are kind of dominating the news to some extent right now. And some of that is to be expected, right? Because you probably have some of these companies that are doing things really interesting that are under lock and key, and they're going to wait until they've really perfected it before they put out a case study because they don't want people to replicate it. But you have really seen a lot of people, particularly in the journalistic sector, that they haven't, as they say, like crossed their T's and dotted their I's and made sure that they're not making any mistakes when they're putting information out there. And I think that that, you know, for good reason, because those are kind of like the, the people who I think about who say like, this is going to revolutionize everything. We have to do it immediately before everybody else. And it's going to be perfect. And let's not think about the unintended consequences, because for every step forward that technology brings us, there are often some things that have to be solved that didn't exist before. Right. Which is why I do think like the proofing and the editing and fact checking might actually be like a more valuable skill than it had been before because we created something fantastic, but it also introduced a few new problems. So CNET is one example, but there are others that have just, you know, essentially fumbled along the way. And that's why I think you don't want to be too conservative, but you do want to make sure that you don't in your rush to innovate kind of take two steps backwards and one step forward. It's more about trying to figure out how you take two steps forward, one step back. That's great. I think this is an excellent point to stop the sort of professional part of our conversation. Before we move to the personal questions, where can people find you? Yeah, I mean, so I'll say a few different places. One thing is people just look up Insider Intelligence and Jeremy Goldman in their browser of choice. It might be uh, Bing these days, given their chat GPT integration news. <laughs> but they'll be able to find a number of my publicly available articles. I think maybe like one in every four or five that I do is publicly available and the rest is behind the paywall. Obviously, if they want to become a subscriber, cool, go ahead. But if not, you'll still get some value out of some of the stuff that is out there. And I am somewhat obsessive about my use of LinkedIn and uh, Twitter. So I'm very easily findable under my name, you know, both of those spots. So and last but not least, my two books, Going Social and Getting to Like, those are uh, pretty easy to find on Amazon as well. So yeah, a number of different ways. And the podcast that you mentioned earlier is? Oh my God, and the podcast, Future Proof, one word, no, it's all caps. I'm doing too many things that I'm forgetting about a few of them. But yeah, Future Proof, I got to say, is fantastic because besides A, it's fantastic. And then B, the great thing about it is everything that I want to cover but I don't have like a business justification to cover yet for insider intelligence. I have the ability to do so uh, for the podcast. And basically the podcast is my way of getting smarter and or covering things outside my coverage area. So this is how you know you're doing what you love when you're building new hobbies for yourself, you know, that are basically just an excuse to work a little bit more. We will get actually to that in a second, but something you mentioned Another area that I really am curious about your opinion, and I think that's going to be really helpful. What's your take on what's going on with Twitter and what will happen with Twitter as a marketer, you know, without getting into the, the politics of it? And 
I know because there's a lot of politics tied to it. It's interesting because I guess I would say Twitter is much more important from like a cultural standpoint than it is from like an advertising standpoint. A lot of people care about it. A lot of people pay attention to it. It doesn't actually make as much money as people would think given uh, how much people care about it and talk about it. So to some extent, you know, we're talking about Twitter too much. You and I, everybody else in the world. But that being said, I enjoy talking about Twitter. People seem to very much care about it. You know, it's like the town square, as, you know, Elon Musk has said. So I think ultimately part of the big issue is that it has plateaued. It's on the slight decline by a number of different measures. And ultimately you know, if it is going to succeed as something, you know, more meaningful than it is now, it probably has to uh, take it to entirely different form. And I, I know that, uh, you know, Elon Musk had a few things tied to super app ambitions, kind of like uh, the WeChat model that hasn't worked in the States, you know, that he's talked a lot about that throughout 2022. If anybody can do it, it's him. Like, you can Twitter kind of needed a moonshot guy doesn't mean that he's made decisions that have made it easier to succeed in the short term. But ultimately, I think it's one of those things where he might need his backup against the wall. And I think he kind of helped put the, his backup against the wall so that he could succeed. You know, I think that's just the way that he's wired. So not to say it will, but I think that if it does transform, that's the only way that it succeeds. It's not going to magically start picking up, you know, 15%, you know, more users year over year, unless it becomes a very different animal than it is now. Yeah. And so if you're thinking about organic efforts and where time is allocated, would it be fair to say that the strategy would be if you have an audience, nourish it and keep it, but maybe don't, try to invest in building a new audience there and and work on safer places? Yeah. I mean, no, I think that's a well said. I wish that Twitter was doing better, that organic reach was better. But if you think about it, organic reach to some extent is a gift. You know, you give this gift of organic reach as a platform uh, if you're able to do that you know, in order to build an audience. And this was the same thing that I saw years ago, Facebook essentially artificially making video views uh, very cheap to get because they wanted to create a market for selling those views later. You know, same thing with getting fans on pages years before that. So ultimately, I just think it's very, very difficult to say that you're going to have really great reach on Twitter. I mean, I basically have quantified that I've got better reach everywhere else, despite having the best following on Twitter. So it becomes one of those things where if you're really trying to monetize it and you're telling people sign up for Twitter blue, if you sign up for Twitter blue, more people will see your tweets. Like the translation to that is that um, we are not going to let people see as much of your tweets if you're not on Twitter blue. Um, and by the way, Twitter blue has not been that successful in terms of getting people to subscribe to it, as I think, you know, certainly in relation to things like Snapchat plus that's just performed better. So that's a whole another topic. But ultimately, yes, your time will be better spent. The average entrepreneur, uh, the average leader trying to build an audience uh, elsewhere than Twitter it pains me to say that as somewhere that I kind of spent a lot of time building my own following on. But it's also true. All right. Sarah, like I get so excited talking about marketing stuff with you. <laughs> Same. Yeah. 
Let's move to the personal questions. First question, what is a hobby that you have outside of your work or a passion and, and how has that maybe impacted your professional life? So I wonder if I can even talk about the podcast given the fact that I was, yeah, okay. So I talked about that a little bit before and preempted it. But in some ways, it's nice to have, I tried to do a few things with the podcast, which is I want it to grow. It has grown. You know, thankfully, I, I've been able to look at like some other people's numbers. And I didn't even realize this, but like, I guess at the start of COVID, a lot of people started launching podcasts. So the average podcast just went down on viewership because there was so much uh, media out there for people to consume. So the very fact that my numbers went up over time during that period, you know, I, I'm very thankful for. But I would say one of the things that I like is it's it's great to have something that kind of allows you to take the outside view, that allows you to essentially have that, I would say, total ownership that, you know, I, I used to kind of have running an agency. I'm able to make every decision I want to out of it. If we want to swap out music, if you want to start to market it in an entirely different way or to a new audience or to try something new, I can do all of those things. And that kind of reinvigorates me because it's not just about the content. It's all about like the placement of it and thinking about who we're going to book in the future and what topics are going to be important in the future. You know, so some of these things are things that actually I don't get to do, you know, day to day in my analyst role. And that allows me to just stay being a marketer to some extent, uh, which I love. But also some of it is just helping me be a better analyst when I am actually on you know, because I was able to see generative AI when it was not of interest to our clients yet, but was on the horizon. So when it started popping and I could cover it at work, you know, great. I was already pretty familiar with it. So it was like a nice little win-win. That's great. Now, my favorite question of the podcast is, what is the business expression or jargon or trend or cliche that drives you crazy? There are so many, and that's probably something that you hear a lot, but I was thinking a little bit about this. I mean, there are some words where they're just annoying and they turn people off, even though they might be the most efficient way of saying what you mean. So I was curious what you think about this, but I was thinking leverage and synergies, you know, those are two that are very jargony, you know, they show up very much in work. And then I'm thinking, is there an easier way to say that? And sometimes you can use four words where you would have previously used one, but it's actually okay to use those four words because you come across as more of a human. Like our point in life should not be to be the most efficient possible. It should be to connect the most possible with our audiences. And sometimes using more words is actually a better way to do that rather than to think of a word that, you know, a few people here and there might not actually know. And, and maybe those are the most important people in your audience. So how do you make things accessible to everybody, I think, is a very important way of, of thinking. Yeah, I have to tell you, synergy is a word that a lot of people can't stand. And I think it's because of its use, it's, it's misused. Like the reasons why people have told me that they don't like the word synergy are radically different, which is always fun when it comes up. Final question, I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can choose if you go the body route, tell me of a food or a drink that you really love. Or if you go the soul route, 
anything that has to relate with human creation, like a book, a piece of music, a movie, a TV show, a cartoon, you know, a, a piece of art. I think one of the things that is just like my food for the soul, and I was there, there are two really good ones that I'm very, very into both comic books and basketball, the NBA in particular. And I think in some ways, I, maybe maybe comics are a better answer here because basketball I can leave on in the background, I can watch, I can work a little bit, I can get things done, but then it's not really a break in the same way. But I think like the best thing about comics is there's this whole interconnected continuity, there's so much creativity that goes into those I feel like I learned so much from those. I feel like, you know, I mean, I'm a New Yorker with three pets and at any given point and three children and a wife. So it's not like I could afford to be in comics long term. And that's probably good, you know, because I get to use it as the thing to unwind and to not think about anything else. And when I'm, I never have a problem going to sleep because I just start to almost you know, some people count sheep. I start to think about all the different superheroes I've made up in like my head that are literally just up here in my brain and nowhere else. And it's great because it's so different than all from all the other things that are in my head that I'm never thinking about like chat GBT or VR or AR or, you know, buy now, pay later or any of the technologies I'm covering during the day. It's a thing that just allows me to release my brain so that I'm not thinking about any of that stuff. And and the fact that it's such a creative discipline that I'm not part of, that I'm just consuming, but it's so creative that I feel like it allows me to be more creative in my professional work. So I bring that to the table because I've been able to unwind and do something totally different. What's a book that you read recently or a, you know, a, a comic book or a, or a favorite character? Oh my God. Wait, wait, hold on. You can, you can tell people what you're looking at right now. I'm looking at Robin right now. New series DC. Black Adam. Black Adam. Young Justice. Dark Circus. Are you DC more than Marvel? Or is just this is the set of books that you have right now? Yeah, that's more like they were just a little closer to us now. But I mean, I'd say there are a lot of characters that speak to me. I think that I mean, Marvel ultimately, pound for pound, has done better over like the course of you and I's lifetime from a writing and art perspective, but I care more about the writing. So I think most people would agree. I think most executives at DC would agree uh, at that, sadly. But there's a lot of great DC stuff. There's a lot of good independent stuff that's not superhero. Even I'm more into the superheroes, but there's a lot of really great stuff out there. And the very fact, to me, it's also so totally an, a, a, an aside, but... I think it's so interesting that this is an industry that just kind of gets by. But meanwhile, think about all of the intellectual property it's generated. It's like amazing. Like you never would have imagined that there would be this much. Like literally, it's like every major movie now, just about with exception of Avatar, comes from comic books originally. Yeah, and I was a very much into comic books growing up. And you know, I think you and I are of the era where you still had to fight with adults to get them to accept that the you know the comic book was an art form as valid as the novel maybe i'm a little older than you are but like i remember no but you're totally right i definitely remember there there are times where you know it was strange and it's nice that they've kind of come around and i think it's been validated a little bit by society that there are these graphic novels for kids and they're like these long things that teach kids to read teach them to love reading 
And it's, it is a lot more validated and considered to be not like this weird, weird thing that you're doing that you have to be ashamed of now versus like when we were kids, which is a nice thing to see, but it never should have been that because it's fantastic. And I think like it's such a kind of way to leave whatever troubles you had during the day behind. You know, the best characters like are reflecting really real life. Like I think what always drew me to the Marvel world was that, you know, once they were out of costume, they had real problems. Like Peter Parker had a tough life (laughs) as a teenager, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's great. I, and I, by the way, I picked up Italian comics in like Verona years ago. So I, I, I like whenever I travel, I'll always try to pick up a few of those things. There are a lot of things. Perfect example of how great technology is, is that Google Translate. Like I can now read comics I picked up in Italy and Iceland and all these other countries that I wouldn't be able to read otherwise. So technology is a wonderful thing. All right. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much. It was great to reconnect. Fascinating conversation. It's great to see you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating or a review. Now stick around because after the credits, I'm going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo. To find all the links for Jeremy, go to the episode page of the podcast website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now here's a song by Susan Cattaneo. It's a dark tale of revenge among sisters, and it's called Lorelei. Enjoy.
raging water filled me up and my soul just wouldn't be departed when you betray your kith and kin something wicked grows within and my spirit's gonna finish what you started what you started together we down into my riverbed and then you'll die just like me.